Hey, this is Sean Tepper, the host of Payback Time, an approachable and transparent podcast on business, investing, and finance. I like to bring on guests to hear authentic stories while giving you actionable takeaways you can use today. Let's go. My next guest is an entrepreneur and investor who built a platform that helps investors monitor their own portfolios. In this episode, we talk about his investing strategy, why he believes it produces better results, and what actions investors can take today. Please welcome Alexander Harmson. Alex, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Sean. Good to have you here. All right. So why don't you kick us off and tell us about your background? My background, you know, my education is engineering physics with uh, a lot of economics. And so it seems like a lot, but what it really comes down to is a lot of mathematics, modeling. I've done a lot of simulation. And basically over the last 10 to 15 years, I've worked in robotics and automation, worked on autonomous vehicle systems, built up a company called Iris Automation. We did a significant amount of simulation, worked on autonomous vehicles. We were actually uh, potentially the first commercial autonomous vehicles company to actually reach scale, sell thousands of systems. And we did it not with self-driving cars, but actually with flying autonomous vehicles and in drones. And so uh, I was always very excited about that. And then did like a pretty hard shift into life sciences, but applied the same sort of modeling simulations. You know, there was a technique that we developed uh, that became more and more useful called hybrid AI modeling. And so basically taking sort of traditional mechanistic systems, combining them with more novel machine learning and AI approaches. And then a couple of years ago, started wondering, you know, why has no one built some model of how the economy works? And, you know, in many ways, it felt similar to you know, autonomous vehicles, you know, building a digital twin of the human body. I mean, how difficult can it really be to model the economy? Everyone that I asked, you know, probably talked to something like five or 600 people, you know, 99% of them said this is impossible. You can never be able to simulate, you know, what's happening in the economy. And a few people that I talked to, actually a few ex-Bridgewater folks said like, you know, we've actually built this. We think about the world like a machine. And so it really made me think that, you know, potentially the big opportunity here is commercializing, democratizing access to Bridgewater type models. You know, thinking about systematic macro, how the world works, how this economy works, applying the same sort of hybrid AI modeling techniques that I used before. And, you know, that's really sort of the founding of global predictions and like, so where we came up with this portfolio pilot product that we're going to talk about today. Yes, I can't wait to dive in. Um, Before we do, I'm curious with any of these other businesses you started in the past, did you go through an exit or you just shut them down or are they side hustles? Where are they at? They're still going. I'm still chairman of Iris Automation. Uh, We ended up, you know, in the aviation world, you know, we ended up uh, running into lots of regulatory hurdles and dealing with the FAA and decided to, to find someone who was, you know, really in that world sort of ex-Boeing, hired a CEO to basically continue scaling up the company. Really excited about that. You know, I spent a couple hours a week on that at this point. And then with this life sciences company, it's still going. You know, I was always really just like more of an AI sort of technical advisor and helped build up you know, the company from the very beginning, but uh, that company, Very Some Life, is, continues to thrive. They're pro-Series A now. You know, they've raised tens of millions of dollars and, uh, you know, they're blowing up. Now, Global Predictions is on its way. We've raised a, a pre-seed round and you know, we're about to go through a seed round and uh, that continues to scale up as well. 
Let's dive into all that. So sounds like globalpredictions.com. That is the website, correct? That's right. Yep. Yeah. That's your, that's where you spend the majority of your time, right? That's right. This is 90% of my time now. Okay, good. All right. So let's, good. let's dive into the model. What, what problem does it solve? Yeah, we definitely, the big vision, sort of the big picture is, you know, building this digital twin of the economy. We want to map out millions of relationships between different macro factors, how they relate to securities, you know, what is actually important, what's not important. One of the frustrating things for us very early on was that, you know, it felt like there was too much focus on individual company analysis or sort of basic trend following with technical analysis or, you know, whether it's the Wall Street Journal or Wall Street Bets. Jim Cramer or, you know, Motley Fool, it felt like it was too micro-focused. It felt like it was too focused on the things that are happening sort of like day-to-day, week-to-week, the news cycle amplifies everything. When in reality, you know, something like 40% of all stock market returns are driven by inflation and GDP changes. And so, you know, our general mentality and what we're trying to solve with global predictions and the, the name of the product itself is Portfolio Pilot. And so you know, what we're trying to solve with Portfolio Pilot is basically taking people's individual portfolios, their net worth, and then connecting that to the economy, connecting it to these economic models, helping people understand how impacted is my portfolio to inflation? How driven is my portfolio by credit conditions and markets? How exposed am I really, you know, if I think about my portfolio in dollar space, you know, maybe only 40% of my portfolio is high growth tech stocks. But if I think about things in risk space, then maybe it's 80% of my portfolio that's, you know, high growth tech stocks. And so I'm not actually properly diversified. I have way more downside risk than I actually think. And so, you know, we like to think about Portfolio Pilot as the most advanced portfolio tracker in the world. You know, it does all the things that a normal portfolio tracker does. You know, it connects to your accounts, automatically updates. You can add things like real estate and crypto and cash and some private equity investments or you know, angel investments, stock options, things like this. But then, you know, it takes into account whether you have taxed accounts or not. It attaches it to these large macro models that we have and then actually gives automatically a whole set of advice. And so it analyzes your portfolio, finds out holes and weaknesses, and then actually recommends buy this, sell this. You can optimize your portfolio by reweighting this part of your portfolio. You know, this is a way that you could save on taxes. This is a more tax optimal strategy. And uh, you know, we wanted to make it both very powerful and very simple to use. And so, you know, that's a that feels like a constant struggle to uh, you know, fit those two things into the same box. Sure. So to back up a second, you were saying that macro is where a lot of people make money in the stock market. So they're really following trends outside of uh, businesses, right? Yeah, we find like, it feels like, and I, I don't really know why this is, maybe because the macro piece is so hard or it's so complex or it's so sort mm-hmm. of intertwined with everything that's happening. But definitely it feels like most people just say like, I can't control the macro piece. And so the thing that I can control or feel like I can wrap my head around is, you know, the company fundamentals. 
or the dividends or the PE ratio or, you know, some next launch or is this company going to do well in the next couple of years? Or like, maybe I should just focus on like a 15 year trend and think like, is this an industry that's going to do really well over a certain period of time? But in reality, you know, if you throw all of that away and just focus on, you know, over the next six months, over the next 12 months, are we going to be in a recession or not? What's GDP going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, how's inflation changing? What are the current macro conditions? You know, what's the impact of credits or liquidity in markets? If you look at, you know, if you pay attention to changes in currency, if you think about the yield curve, bond rates, interest rates, and like how all these things impact what you're holding, that's way more impactful and you will end up making way more money than any of the sort of individual micro things that you focus on. That's maybe like the the crazy thing that we think we're bringing to market, which feels very obvious to us, but is definitely contrarian. It it is because you know with ticker and with who we follow, where where people make the most of their money, it's kind of like venture capitalists. You're in that space too. They're not investing in an entire market. They're investing in great businesses. That's where you make your big returns. For example. I had a guy on the podcast who only invested in one insurance company for like 15 years and he turned that into multi-million dollars, right? Right. Warren Buffett made his first million off like five businesses in the beginning. Highly focused, great companies, not investing. Because what we get investors that are like, I want to be a millionaire overnight, so I'm going to invest in S&P 500. What are we doing here? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like you're not going to make a lot of money investing in the market. You have to be in businesses. So we we are business micro focused. We're not so macro focused. You are actually the first to be in the podcast that's macro focused. Yeah, and I think uh, I, th- I absolutely think there is money to be made on the macro piece. You know, like don't get me wrong. I just think it's extremely difficult for retail investors to do that. I think. You know, something like 99% of the like possible alpha that comes from the micro focus, mm-hmm. you know, gets mopped up by the hedge funds out there. And I think it's easy to convince ourselves as sort of part-time retail investors that, you know, we are taking advantage of some trend that, you know, the rest of the market is missing. So, I mean, maybe to give one example, I was talking to someone recently about uh, his investment portfolio, sort of his strategy, super fascinating. He had done tons of research into lithium, you know, and he thinks, you know, mm-hmm. we have electric vehicles that are taking off, right? This massive trend and all of that requires battery technology and the batteries need the lithium. There's, you know, basically where lithium is mined around the world, there's all these like conflict zones and the expectation that there's going to be even more conflict that sort of it's like, you know, bipolar world, you know, becomes more and more defined. There's going to be a lot more so proxy conflicts in areas with like rich minerals like this. It feels like, you know, China is obviously a big player in this and they're going to start cutting off supply. And so there's going to be more of a squeeze on lithium. And so sort of supply and demand leads us to think that lithium prices are going to go through the roof over the next couple of years. And that feels like a great investment opportunity at the moment. The problem is that that's not any different than what the lithium traders that set prices in the market currently expect, right? Like as an individual retail investor, you probably don't have your opinion on this or like your current thesis 
about what's going to happen to lithium prices probably isn't all that different than what the like biggest hedge funds that are trading commodities are thinking about you know the next couple of years. That means that a lot of that future you know expectation around price and you know, you know supply and demand in the lithium market is probably already priced in today's pricing. You're not actually going to get the returns that you think you are beyond so just broad market exposure to commodities, right? Just like an inherent risk reward that you get for investing in individual commodity like lithium. And there's sort of some very basic, you know, return basically that the market compensates you for taking on that risk. Mm -hmm. But there's not a extra return you're getting from some like unique view on the lithium market. That's I think I mean that's one example, but it relates to everything. Right. It's the same thing with you know, I think Apple's an incredible company because of all these fundamentals. Like, unless you have some unique view or some insider knowledge, or you know, you're probably going to be thinking about that in a fairly similar way than you know what's already priced into markets right now. And so, like fundamentally, if you're going to make money beyond what everybody else is going to make, then you need to be investing in things that other people are ignoring or in markets that are so deep that you know the alpha doesn't get eroded which basically means like you need some contrarian bets or you need to be doing this full time and like really, really in it, or you need to be investing on the macro side. Because on the macro side, even Bridgewater with, you know, $150, $200 billion, you know, rarely moves markets Mm -hmm. because these macro markets are so deep and these opportunities are so deep that like the opportunity just doesn't get eroded. Yeah. Let's take a quick commercial break. Have you ever lost money in the stock market? Maybe you heard or saw a comment on YouTube, TikTok, Reddit, or another social platform, or maybe you just received bad advice from a friend. Yeah, I think we've all been there. Most people lose money in the stock market because they make decisions based on emotions. What if you could remove emotions from investing? What if you could make consistent returns in the stock market based solely on logic? And what if there's a software that could handle that logic for you? Introducing Ticker, a platform that helps you manage your investments with confidence. Get started today with a free trial. Visit ticker.com. That's T-Y-K-R.com. Again, ticker.com. All right, back to the show. I have to say this. It's a lot of over-engineered behavior in the macro space I see. And I've read principles and I don't exactly agree with Dalio's principles, if you will, but interesting perspective. I do appreciate it. But um, we do find a lot of our investors, they are beating the market, not only by a little, by a lot, but it's what we use are the four M's. I'll keep it pretty simple. So you look at the fundamentals first, that's the margin of safety M, that's everything math related, but we teach people always look past the numbers. I like your example there with lithium because that moves on to the second M, which is meaning what is the industry? What is the business model? How does it make money? What are the revenue streams? How does it have multiple streams, right? Then the moat competitive advantage is the third M. Then the management, who's the quarterback? What's their experience? Have they won Super Bowls before? They're coming right out of high school. That's just a metaphor. But we look at all four M's. If you can check all those boxes, then that's where you that's where our investors are really crushing it. I'm curious. So you're investing in the market. How are you doing, you know, excluding 2022 because there's a bear market? But how do you what kind of returns are you generating with this macro approach? Why would you exclude 2022? You want to you want to include it because it's it was a down year, especially for me. It's a bear market. Yeah, but it, I mean, I guess the, the way I look at it is not about total returns. It's total returns, you know, it's relative returns, right? 
yeah. to what you could have been doing with a different strategy or what the like overall market is returning. And I actually think that taking this macro approach, like I absolutely think that, you know, this sort of strategy that you're laying out makes a ton of sense. This is a great way to evaluate companies. To me, it just doesn't seem very differentiated than what, you know, the top hedge funds are doing to evaluate the same companies. And so, you know, it's very likely that the top hedge funds are the ones that are actually setting the price. And so, you know, if they see some dislocation and they're going to adjust the price, you know, they're going to mop up that alpha and then, you know, they're going to do that much quicker. They're going to have models to evaluate all these things. And so to us, it feels like the thing that is missing from the hedge fund piece is that, and most retail investors, you know, all of us, is that we typically exclude these other market events. You know, we say like, okay, it would have been a really good portfolio or would have been a really good year. This investing approach that I'm taking would have been really good if it wasn't for inflation or if it wasn't for the Fed changing interest rates or if it wasn't for, you know, this down market or a bear market. Or I actually think that you can't just exclude that. Unless, I mean, you could exclude it if you're specifically hedging out all of the macro risk. So hedge funds exclude this, right? They very specifically say our alpha is like in this, like we are really, really good at, you know, picking managers. And we are basically going to isolate that risk and hedge against the markets and hedge against any of the macro and hedge against any of the other fundamentals and changes and other sectors and just focus on the manager risk. I think it's very difficult to do that, you know, as a retail investor, which don't have access to a lot of those tools, like the low cost, mm -hmm. uh, you know, hedging strategies. And so realistically, that means that you can't just exclude 2022 and you need to think like, okay, is my portfolio, you know, properly diversified? Am I really thinking through, you know, what's going to happen in up markets and down markets? Is my strategy going to work regardless of macro conditions? And Maybe this word diversified has a like a negative connotation, right? Because <laughs> even, even what you say, right? Like some of the greatest money makers in history specifically say diversification is bad. Yes. Right? If you know what you're doing, why would you diversify? Yeah. You know, if you know what you're doing, then you know, put all of your eggs in one basket and you know, watch that basket really closely. Right. This feels sort of like the Warren Buffett example that you mm -hmm. brought up before. So when I say diversification, I don't mean, you know, get like a nice portfolio of equities and bonds, right. you know, and, and I think a lot of people think about diversification in this way, you know, they think about like, okay, in good times, I want to make sure that like half my portfolio or 60% of my portfolio is like getting tons of exposure and going up. But then in bad times, I want to make sure that, you know, I, I cut my losses. And what that really feels like is a compliment, you know, what it really means and what it ends up being yeah. is a compliment. And so we think about diversification in a very different way. We think about diversification in the sense that you should have all high-performing securities in your portfolio. Every single item in your portfolio should be expected to go up. And so, like, I don't have any bonds in my portfolio, but my portfolio is extremely diversified. And what that really means is that I look at not diversification on a surface level, but I look at diversification when it comes to macro drivers. And so my general philosophy is that my portfolio, you know, if I have 10 items in my portfolio, eight of those items in any macro condition should go up and two in any macro condition should go down at any time. And so on the whole, I'm making a fair amount of money where 80% is going up, 20% is going down. 
And you know what that really means is I got a bunch of commodities exposure. I have some like you know leveraged uh, inflation-linked bonds in my portfolio. I have some consumer staples companies in my portfolio. There's other things like that that I think you know beyond sort of like the the typical equities. There's a fair amount of emerging markets exposure in my portfolio. You know, so there's there's things like this that you know, allow you to look at diversification, you know, a couple layers deeper and diversify on the core drivers to the portfolio, allowing you to pick high, you know, what you think are high performing assets while still being diversified and, you know, making money in an up market or a down market. Sure. And just to be clear, like I still lost money this last year. I just lost a lot less money than I think most other people. Right. And, you know, it's probably unrealized, you know, you don't sound like the type of guy that's going to sell. You know, we do get people who are on the fence and the market's going down. They're like, well, I better sell for a loss because I feel like I'm going to lose more. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I like to think that with this like more diversified strategy, I feel like I don't have to worry about the bear markets or the bull markets. I don't have to worry about the, the macro conditions nearly as much unless I'm specifically trying to get some alpha from those macro conditions. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about this a little bit before we started, but, you know, we think a lot at Global Predictions about this like concept of hybrid investing. And so when we think about hybrid investing, basically we think about like this macro diversified base as sort of the core of your portfolio. You know, this idea of sort of 80% is going to go up, 20% is going to go down. It's net neutral to different macro conditions. And so it should be net neutral to inflation conditions. It should be net neutral to credit conditions, net neutral to changes in growth, internationally diversified. And then on top of that, sort of the other part of the hybrid strategy is where you think you can get alpha. And so I actually don't think this like, you know, I don't think what you're saying is really at odds with what we're saying, Mm. what we believe. You know, we like to think that everybody, no matter who you are, should have this like very diversified base that's net neutral to macro, that's sort of guaranteed to make money in any macro condition. And then on top of that, you have like whatever you think is your alpha strategy. And that could be the four M's and the specific stock picking, or it could be, you know, we think it's easier and like more attainable to make money as a retail investor, sort of on the macro side and thinking about stock releases and sort of the medium term where markets are going and act accordingly. And then, you know, depending on how much belief you have in the alpha that you have, you, know, you basically change the weighting of your portfolio. You know, and so personally, I feel like I have something like 50% of my portfolio in this sort of net, like this neutral macro diversified base and 50% in so where I think I have alpha mm-hmm. and, you know, where I trade according to like some of the insights that come from our portfolio pilots platform. Sure, sure. So I have to ask, circling back, how are you doing in the market? Let's factor in 2022 over the you know average returns over the last five years, let's say, per year. Yeah. So I mean, just to be clear, like we're you know two and a half years into the company at this point, right? So mm-hmm. five years ago was very different than two years ago. But over the last year in particular, you know, I'm down five percent in total compared to like I don't know what it is with most other people, but definitely mm-hmm. 15, 20 percent, you know, is not crazy. Sure, sure. And I think a big part of that is because, you know, of how the leveraged inflation linked bonds have done, how like some of the, the emerging markets have done and how the commodities have done, you know, and mm-hmm. those, like that's sort of the piece of the portfolio that 
I expect to do relatively well, but especially in high inflation environments, you know, I expect to do really well. Gotcha. And then prior to 2022, let's take a snapshot of like five years, because I assume you've been investing in the, the stock market before you started your business, correct? Definitely. Yep. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? So what kind of tr- returns were you generating then? I think that uh, I honestly don't know if I have a good number, but I think that the, you know, the strategy that I was using at that point was basically like risk on all equities mm-hmm. and like fair amount of ETFs and sort of index funds and sort of like more broad exposure to like what I consider high risk, high return. And so the returns there were pretty good, but mostly just because I was accidentally trading in an incredible bull market. Mm-hmm. I think it was, you know, two and a half years ago, you know, when I was asking people about like, why has no one built sort of this macro model, model of the economy, I met my co-founder and, you know, this guy, Reed Hartman, he worked at Bridgewater for a long time. He left and like was a, a hedge fund portfolio manager, managed over $150 million in assets. And like, I just, I learned from him every single day. He's fascinating in the sense that like, he's just been taught in the hedge fund world and has a completely different view of like, what's possible, what's not possible. A lot of companies that we come across, a lot of news articles, it's sort of like, ah, like there's more crap or more of the same, or like, you know, this is interesting. And of course this makes sense, but everybody that sets prices on the hedge fund world also thinks this makes sense. And so there's not actually alpha there. Like it could be true and it could be a great opportunity but the opportunity disappeared two weeks ago you know, when the news originally came out and three hours later, you had some like big hedge fund moves that took advantage of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so being able to see inside what that world looks like and the kind of data that people have access to, and even some of the people that have been introduced to like learn what's happening, some of it, I mean, we, we pull in tremendous amount of data, as you can imagine, right, into mm-hmm. this global predictions technology stack. I mean, we probably take in something like 2 million data series every single week. And so we continuously talk to new data vendors. It's kind of wild what hedge funds have access to in terms of data streams. You know, I mean, there's an entire industry here. Like, I was talking to someone who, like, the whole point of their company Basically, it's just like consultant company that sets out like data reports every single week. They interview people who were just fired from big tech companies and basically ask them to reveal secrets about that tech company. And like the more like the worse that firing was, the more they're willing to reveal. Like basically, this was like this guy trying to sell me this data stream and these reports basically saying like, this is our strategy. This is how we get like really sort of, he said, it's not technically insider information because they don't work there anymore. And they personally, like their company doesn't have the risk because they are not trading off of it. And because they specifically tell these people, like don't reveal anything important, but they push hard enough in the interviews that they end up revealing things that aren't public knowledge. And like, they have a massive business. And they sort of fly under the radar and like they approached us and they don't have a website, but they definitely do millions of dollars in revenue every single year. And like, there's just this, this whole world that like, we don't have access to. We meaning like, you know, sort of us leaves us retail investors. And like, I've gotten a glimpse of that. And I think that's part of what informs my opinion on like, mm-hmm. just very difficult to make money, you know, off the micro stuff. I, 
I come from the teaching and I have to give Phil Town, I don't know if you know him, but I give him a ton of credit because he teaches us. And I, I found an article here, CNBC states that over 80% of hedge funds actually do not beat the market. But as Phil teaches, we can, as retail investors, we can all beat the market because we're not managing 50, 100, 500 different accounts. We're just managing our own. And that makes it actually extremely easy to do. I've, I've, you probably run into people in this space, but I talk to people that run a fund and what is the stress threshold? Where does it become too hard to manage? And I found that number to be like, you know, I've heard people say 40, 45 different accounts. And that's why some people are like, I only work with families that have a net worth of 5 million or more, you know, <laughs> you know, so I got right. 50, right at 50 accounts at 5 million. Okay. Now I can make some money based off the AUM, but um, it's interesting where things get really stressful in that space. Now your software, it sounds like it can help save a little time, make their lives a little easier. Is that correct? Oh, for wealth managers? Yeah. Because you got you to be to B play and a B to C play, right? That's right. Uh, I definitely think that we're probably 90% focused on the B to C side. Like mm. We definitely see most of our business, most of where we think we can like really make an impact on the consumer side. And then we definitely have like a number of wealth managers that have come to us as well and said like, hey, this seems really impactful. I like to think on the wealth manager side, it's mostly helping wealth managers look like geniuses. And we're monitoring so much, right? It's almost like, you know, it's a sort of automated version of a team of thousand analysts that's looking at the world and analyzing data streams and calling out trends and deviations or returning to trend or trying to give context and insights into what's normal, what's not. You know, the forecasts are extremely interesting. But when the forecasts change, it's even more interesting that something has changed the forecast and like, the expected outcome. So we call all of those outs as well into this like insights product that we have. And so some people just use that, right? It's almost like a an automated, unbiased version of like what you might find in the Wall Street Journal or it's data and charts and just sort of automated things that the system spits out and like automatically ranks in terms of how impactful and interesting they are. And so we find that the wealth managers seem to really like that part of the system. I think oftentimes with wealth managers, they have some like fairly passive core strategy that they don't change up all that often. I don't think I've really encountered a wealth manager that is trying to individually manage and get alpha for like each of their clients. Very typically they say like, okay, onboard your money. And like, we have sort of five different portfolios that we sort of centrally manage as a team. And we're going to put you in one of those. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why the consumer side of the business and portfolio pilot is so attractive is because there's just like a whole wave of millennials and Gen Z that wants to do it themselves and probably should be able to do it themselves. And like self-directed investing feels way more possible than ever, ever before. The like no, the no fee trading, like the all the execution platforms that are out there, all of the opportunities you absolutely should be able to do it yourself. And so I kind of feel like the portfolio pilot piece is you know, the most attractive because it's there for the self-direct investors. And then the wealth manager side is almost there to be sort of like this engine of insights and like interesting things that keeps the wealth managers relevant and helps them stay ahead of like what might come for their clients. But it's a very, like it's 
specifically a very different kind of user that goes to wealth management, right? Yeah. The, like the kind of investor that says like, okay, please manage my money for me. They have said like, I don't want to do this, right? I don't want the additional responsibility. I want to trust someone else. And uh, maybe some of them believe that they'll make more money doing that, doing it that way. But I think it's like, feels like a pretty common thing, like a pretty common understanding at this point that you're not going to make more money, you know, putting your money with a wealth manager, especially after fees. Correct. Correct. Let's take a quick commercial break. Hey, this is Sean. I'd like to say thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I know there's a lot of other podcasts you could be listening to, so thanks for taking the time to listen to this one. I have a quick request. If you have a moment, could you please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review? The reason is the more ratings we get and the higher those ratings are, the more Apple will share us with the world. So thanks in advance for doing that. And then I have a quick comment. If there are any questions you want me to ask the guests, please head over to our ticker Facebook group. You can drop a question right there. I'll go ahead and make a note and I'll do my best to ask that question on the podcast. All right, back to the show. We we set expectations with our audience that they're very two different strategies. If you want to accelerate your wealth and actually make money, you need to be doing it on your own. And of course, we're we're into stocks, equities, the micro play. If you go with an advisor, and I've got a lot of friends in this space, they set expectations right away. We're not here to make you money. We're here to protect your wealth. Yeah, That's a lot about not losing money. Correct. It's a lot about sort of growing slowly over time. Yep. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know we talked more about investment strategy than your business on this, which I, I thought was a lot of fun. But um, what I'd like to, I'm going to ask you a question here. What is a key takeaway, one key action people can take today when investing on their own? I'm extremely biased in this, of course, but mm -hmm. I really think that most people don't set up this like diversified base. And, you know, even if you think you have lots and lots of alpha and have this course trading strategy, you know, at a minimum, you should decide what that split is and put a certain amount of money into this sort of like this macro neutral base as part of this hybrid investing strategy. And like, obviously I'm biased, but I think people should sign up for a portfolio pilot. You know, it's free, connect your portfolio and not just think about your like one, you know, Robinhood trading account, but think about your retirement accounts, cash, your crypto, your real estate, you know, basically pull everything in together and look to see, you know, does the risk overall match the risk that you're really willing to take? You know, what is your overall risk adjusted returns across your entire net worth and the expectation for the next year? And, you know, what is your downside protection? And when we think about downside protection, we really think about sort of what is your exposure to potential tail risk in the economy? And this is where the sort of like the, the net neutral macro exposure comes in. You know, like how exposed are you really to changes in inflation or surprises in GDP and growth conditions? And I think even if you don't change anything about your portfolio and decide to like take on the risk with, from the current strategy that you're employing, I think it's very useful to consider that, to measure that, and just be explicit about the risk you are taking and the, like the downside that you actually do have. Right on, right on. The nice. downside exposure you do have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I do encourage anybody, uh, if you want to check out a portfolio tracker, they should definitely go to your site. We've got Portfolio Pilot. 
com, right? That's global, right. Yeah. Global yeah. Globalpredictions.com is sort of that, you know, the whole company and there's interesting stuff about the technology and blogs and breakdowns there. And then portfoliopilot.com is the, right, the product right. itself. And this is like solely focused on the consumer. Got it. Well, let's dive into a fun little round here. I call the rapid fire round. This is part of the episode where we get to find out who Alex really is. If you can try to answer each question in 15 seconds or less. You ready? Okay. Ready. What is your favorite podcast? Favorite podcast that recently I've really been listening to uh, this podcast called Founders. And basically this guy who sort of like talks uh, within like a sort of unique audience or like a sort of to himself and sort of thinks like we're all on this journey together. He basically just goes through different biographies and, of interesting founders throughout history, breaks it down, sort of really tries to get into their like mental space, philosophy, how they're thinking. And it just like, it feels so intimate. I love that. That's cool. Very cool. What is a recent book you read and would recommend? There's a, there's a book that's, I think, completely changed my way. I think about product management called Jobs to be Done. And uh, basically says that, like, you know, you shouldn't just interview people and ask them what they want, but you should really, really drill down to like, what is the job to be done? You know, what, why would they hire your product? You know, what is the thing that will actually, what is the problem that they're actually looking to be solved and fixed rather than like something they may just be interested in? Right, right. Asking those key questions, you know, product development, so many people overlook the skills required to do it correctly, especially in the early stages of a startup. So good for you for leaning into that. Yeah. All right. We got a fun one here. What is your favorite movie? My favorite movie has got to be A Beautiful Mind. Hmm. There's, uh, I mean, I've seen this so many times at this point, but I think there's something about just like being so maniacally focused on like making an impact in the world and causing some change. And I don't know, there's something so scary about the mind deteriorating and like what that could possibly look like. I honestly think I'm, it's partly my favorite movie because it's like, it's extremely inspiring and it's like, you know, it's worse than some horror movies in terms of like yes. the fact that that could happen to us at some point. And uh, yeah, beautiful mind. Great, see it again. great perspective. I haven't seen it in years, but that's a great call. Yeah. Um, a few business questions here. What is the worst business advice you ever received? Worst business advice? I think, honestly, this like may be like super contrarian, but I actually think that. A lot of people say, like, you should just continuously be fundraising, talking to investors, maintaining relationships. And like, I don't know, my general, like my general mindset and like what's worked really well across probably uh, at this point, 10 different fundraises and something like 50 or $60 million raised is like, cut out investors, don't talk to them unless I'm like 100% in investing mode. In which case, I basically put the rest of the, like, give the company to my co-founder to run and just go, like, you know, seven meetings a day, investors for three to four months. And then once the round is closed, the money's in the bank, get back to company building, focus on the customer, focus on the product. And it blows my mind that this is common advice. 
Yeah, I, <laughs> we, we actually were completely bootstrapped and we decided not to raise funds partially because of that exact reason. It's a distracting process. It gets you further away from your customers and your product. It's like, nope, nope. We are highly focused on our customer building a great product. And that is that. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. The right, <laughs> right approach. All right. Let's flip the equation. What is the best advice you ever received? Uh, Fire fast, hire slow. Yeah. yeah. I think this continues to be something that I just need to like iterate again and again and again. And like we sort of like to think that we set a very high bar and like there's tons of pressure. Like we need this senior software engineer right now and we need to fix this thing. But you know, if you end up firing that person three months later, it's so distracting to the company, it affects the company culture. And like I really like this mentality of sort of like you know, A players hire other A players and B players hire C players, you know, like that's come up and I've seen that in practice and like, you just need to maintain the bar. I think it's so important that every new hire raises the bar for the company, adds something, uh, otherwise it becomes a compromise and a slippery slope. Yes, that is wise. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. Last, last question here. Um, this is a time machine question. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit and what would you say? This is a great question. I love this. Uh, I think back to like running Iris Automation in the early days, like my first company, right? And we, we had technical risk building autonomous vehicle systems. We had regulatory risk you know, dealing with sort of like a early autonomous vehicles, drones, FAA. Um, we had business risk because like we were building a critical component within a growing industry. And there was execution risk because we were first-time founders. And like, I mean, it's kind of crazy that we like managed to pull it off and like we're now international and like you're basically like sort of uncontested like leader in the space. And I would have told myself in the early days that like, you need to focus, like talk to customers more, focus. I know we spent so much time on like random admin stuff. And like, I don't know where the days went and why we focused on these things, but it felt really important that we had like all of our finances like correct. And we had all these admin issues and like, you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, making sure that we had the right office space. And now it's just like, we're all remote. And I just have like one bookkeeper and just like push everything to her and like the taxes. I don't think about it all year and like all the IRS notices and everything, put them in a big pile and just hand them to our accountant once a year. And like that stuff will sort itself out post series A. You know, once we get to a large enough point, we'll hire a, like a VP of finance and we'll like clean up any of the like random other loose ends that we didn't deal with in the early days. But the early days should really, really just be focused on product market fit talking to as many customers as possible, building something people want, you know, outsourcing as much as you possibly can. That's not like the critical thing that you were actually focused on. And eight years ago at this point, and like that guy like needed a, needed a slap or like a hit to the head and just like <laughs> focus. Like you think you're focused, but you're not focused. Like you are going to learn over the next eight years what focus really, really means. Yeah. And like, just cut 90% of what you're doing out. It doesn't matter. 
That's a, thanks for sharing that. I, I know our audience loves lessons learned. Um, I got to jump off here in a second, but we'll make sure we promote your website link when you get out to social media and all the hot spots. But Alex, thank you so much for sharing your story here and dive in and investing a little bit. We had a good discussion there. Sean, I love that. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll see ya. Hey, I'd like to say thank you for checking out this podcast. I know there's a lot of other podcasts you could be listening to. So thanks for spending some time with me. Also, if you have a moment, could you please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review? The more reviews we get, the more Apple will share this podcast with the world. So thanks for doing that. And last thing, if you do hear any stocks mentioned on this podcast, please keep in mind, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do not make a buy or sell decision based solely on what you hear. All right. Thanks for your time. We'll talk to you later. See ya.